Hello and welcome to another podcast. Today I'm talking to Matthias Lenz. Matthias has published several articles in the peer-reviewed IAABC journal. He's also a member of the board for the IAABC Foundation and has been a speaker multiple times at the Assistance Dog International Conference and also is a speaker for the International Guide Dog Federation uh, for their conference. So really looking forward to talking a little bit more about guide dogs and assistance dog training with Matthias. Let's get into it. Hey, Matthias, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Excited to be here. Yes, yeah, good to have you on. I was actually looking at our uh, chat log and we first started talking five years ago, almost exactly to the day. So it's a bit weird that we chose today to, to do this podcast on. <laughs> Oh, I didn't. I didn't realize that. That's uh, that's a long time. The the pandemic is making time weird. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I think. Uh, well, I know we we need to get into the guide dog training and and uh, you know all of the kind of interesting stuff you do. Um, but it's interesting as well because one, I think the topic that's probably come up the most with me and you, or the thing that we've spoken about the most, is the whole. Uh, balanced versus positive training divide that, that, that exists right yes which <laughs> i have my frustrations with for sure uh and i'm trying wherever i can i'm trying to be the the bridge in the divide and i feel like you're the same and that's i think that's how we started talking because i think i'm so frustrated <laughs> by the divide and i wish it wasn't like that yeah, I did a episode with uh, Pat Stewart ages ago, years ago, and uh, that was the title of the episode. And I think that created some conversation at the time about that. And I know you kind of shared the same opinion that like that it's a shame that there is such a, a divide in terms of uh, oftentimes just information sharing as well. You know, I, I see on uh, Facebook, you get involved in conversations on kind of both sides of of that debate with balanced and positive trainers. And uh, I've definitely, I kind of resonate with that a lot as well, because I speak to a lot of balanced trainers. Also, like, will uh, buy balanced trainers courses and like, just learn from people that are balanced as well. And I don't know if we're the minority. Like, sometimes it feels like that. It feels like a lot of people were like, you know, really like one or the other and you absolutely can't cross-pollinate whatsoever which is a is a massive shame because you kind of aren't getting the full story like you're not seeing all of the different things that uh people are doing even if you don't go and and you know even if you don't do exactly what they're doing you can you can take so much from so many different approaches and i know you've done a lot of that kind of stuff yeah, and since you started going down that route, <laughs> I might uh, tell the story on like how I ended up really exploring both sides. And so I, um, I don't know. I guess I, I, I sort of apprenticed in a pet dog training. I all I started in a pet dog context uh, with. Uh, a dog walking company i was a dog walker for many years and i kind of just like i didn't explore what was out there i kind of just uh 
learned from from the more experienced people in the in the company I worked for. And uh, there was it was mixed. It wasn't like fully force free. There was a lot of like uh, positive reinforcement being used, but there was also other like there were some uh, leash corrections being used and stuff. And uh, then I moved. I I tried corrections on my own dog uh, back then, who had a lot of issues. So she was a rescue pit bull border collie cross that cost me a lot of grief, and uh, it was not good. It was uh, it, it, I had that exact scenario that people are worried about and talk about in that uh, I punished away the, the warning signals for my dog like she instead of giving warning signals, she started having like soft eyes and and uh, just like, sorry, my dog's throwing her Kong. So I'm gonna take that away. Um, so I punished those things away. She she already had very little warning signals, but then um, punished those away. And so there was it was really difficult to deal with her because she would like internalize things. She was like, I get in trouble if I'm acting a certain way. And then all of a sudden lash out, but lash out like triple as hard as she would have <laughs> previously. Um, so I realized it's not going well. So I explored the force-free side. Um, positive reinforcement and i had way more success with that and we made a lot of progress uh using that so i was sold right like i'm like this is it i, I got my karen prior uh certification um yeah and i was just kind of sold on the whole idea but then i got the job in the um in the service dog world and there were trainers there that had uh they were very new to using positive reinforcement or at least food rewards they had trained guide dogs um without using any food to do like really difficult tasks and so for me um i realized that i didn't understand how they would do that like, I'm like, how do you get a dog to do uh, all these tasks not using food? Because I really was uh, always from the beginning of my uh, dog training career, I was using a lot of positive reinforcement and food. So because of that, I was like, I need to understand like if i have conversations with these people i need to understand where they came from and how they uh how they think and how they're doing it at that point they were already using a lot of positive reinforcement or whatever but i just felt like i'm missing part of the piece and i don't just like i cannot really give us an example though matthias like what uh what was uh, something that you couldn't understand that they weren't using food for well maybe not not understand but i just struggled with the idea of like having these dogs doing these guiding tasks and uh, because like as as is mentioned so often it's like you can't teach a dog with punishment you can just like reduce certain behaviors but they obviously taught things not using food um and 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 some of it was done with uh avoidance for sure or a lot of it potentially um but also uh, there was reinforcement in terms of praise, access to things and other things. Um, anyways, where I'm heading with this is that I, because I felt 
uneducated in that regard. And I had explored positive reinforcement side of things for so long. Um, I just started diving into the more balanced training communities. I started talking to people from that side. And I was really, uh, really surprised because at that point I was mostly thinking that a lot of these people are, uh, they don't know what I know about positive reinforcement. They are just like behind the times and they're overly harsh and all these things. And what I found, I was really surprised by just finding people that cared just as much about the dog's experience as me that were very thoughtful in uh, application of these aversives. And a, a lot of times we're trying to avoid that. And there were definitely the other spectrum was there as well. And there, I think there's different forums and communities where different people hang out. And I saw that too. Like if I entered a forum where people got celebrated for like really harsh leash corrections or whatever, and everybody's like, yay, this is great. You showed that dog who's boss. Like I was out of there. Like, I'm like, that doesn't work for me. But if there was thoughtful discussions, um, then then I was there and I listened and I learned a lot. And I think I've probably changed more people's minds by doing that, by asking questions, than so many people that are trying to, to tell other people what they should do. And so I, I feel like if we just went in and asked questions instead of judge people like everything will be so much better because we can just we can just ask why are you doing that why like what do you think would happen if xyz and a lot of times um you get people thinking maybe they're still holding on to their old ways and I'm, i never went in with the with the goal of changing people's minds, right? I went in to learn, but I think I have changed people's minds, but also vice versa. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, I agree. I'm not really sure that that's really my goal anymore, but I certainly was that person as well. And it's interesting what you said about, you know, the narrative has always been like, uh, you know, people that are balanced trainers or whatever are just kind of like, you know, they don't understand dog training and they're, uh, you know, just kind of like cavemen, you know, <laughs> and uh, actually you're right when you, when you do explore that, you do realize there are a lot of balanced trainers that are really sophisticated. And I think that like that probably was more true at one time. Like there was a time where a lot of the people using punishment, where it was like really old fashioned, really heavily, you know, uh, heavily punishment based. And I think that's uh, changed over the years. And we still kind of have that narrative and uh yeah i'm not really sure for me like i kind of went on the same journey i guess um except now i guess i for me personally i just got to a point where it's like i just don't really i i don't think it's helpful to kind of divide ourselves into positive and balanced trainers i think it's more for me just like be a dog trainer you know and um and let those conversations happen and I think as a whole com a community of dog trainers, we'll just continue to improve. Um, that's kind of where I've, I've got to. Um, and, and as you said, that, that improvement comes from conversations and whatnot, but not really when people are having debates and they're trying to change each other's mind. And, you know, I think it comes much more when you actually just, 
you know, you just train dogs. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and- totally. I'm like, I'm just trying to find out what, like, what is the best way, like find out more. I want to, I want to, I want to be the best dog. Well, actually I've given up on being the best dog trainer I could be, <laughs> but I want to understand it as best as possible. I like to think about dog training more than actually doing it. That's a, maybe a whole other topic. <laughs> Oh, I relate to that a lot, though. I'm really glad that you bring that up because I that is exactly me as well in terms of when I was younger, I really was like, you know, ambitious about like, oh, I want to be the best dog trainer in the world. And I just want to like, you know, be a uh, really, really crazy at this. And uh, and then I had exactly the same thing where I got involved in the Facebook conversations and then I would just spend hours like getting deep into like such like silly uh like minutia of like uh behaviorism and whatnot um but for me i think that's actually kind of changed like personally i i feel like that's kind of changed in the last year or so and now i'm actually getting back into just training dogs again and spending a lot less time on facebook (laughs) you know (laughs) but it sounds like you train a lot of dogs but why would you not want to be the best dog trainer you can be because you actually ended that sentence with you can be oh i well, yes. I mean, I would want to be that. I just like, I, I, I know I'm not the, like up there with other people and I never will be. And I realized, I would say quite early on that like my, you know, there's those people that like, they want to, they don't want to hang out with the people. They want to train the dogs and they just like, give me the dogs, board and train. They're happiest when they're just with the dogs doing the training versus for me, it's like, I like to think about the training. I like to think about a solution. I try to understand. And, and I'm, I'm not even that excited about dog training, like task training or whatever. For me, it's really about uh, understanding the animal and finding like a communication and getting, getting, things across to the animal or or finding solutions like i like a puzzle to solve but then when it comes down to putting in the repetitions I'm, i'd like to say like and here's now what you have to do for the next 20 days five times a day for 10 minutes <laughs> then yeah. like when it comes down to the repetition part i don't get excited nor do i find a lot of motivation to do it myself so <laughs> yeah no i uh I can relate to that a lot, but I guess for me, I've been trying to change that about myself because I wanted to, uh, I wanted to make sure that I was actually doing the work, you know, like really getting really heavily into, into the training. Um, and you're right. Um, for me, cause I'm a pet dog trainer. You can, for me, I can kind of get away with like for my clients, like I could get away with not really training dogs a lot. You know, I could just, uh, yeah, as you said, solve problems. And there is definitely something fun. Like, I agree that's probably, for a lot of people, I think maybe that's the more reinforcing part is like finding a strategy and then actually seeing that strategy work. Um, but I guess it's a little bit different for me because now I've got Onyx and like, I have to train dogs. Because <laughs> yeah. otherwise she attacks me, you know? She just gets really crazy in the house. <laughs> um, and also I want to have like a well-trained dog. Um, so I've been using... I don't know if you if you use this because, but um, recently I've started using Steve White's Taproot system. Have you come across this? No, I listened to your podcast with him. Um, we didn't mention it on that podcast. No, though. no, it's just um, 
if you look, if you go, you don't have to do it right now, but I just mean for people listening, if you Google like a uh, taproot training chart, and I want to say his business is proactive canine, you can pull it up and it's basically just a way of like marking that you've trained things and like keeping track of, of your training, um, which has been super helpful for me, like super helpful for just like making sure that I'm actually, you know, filling in the squares and getting, it's like, my girlfriend said it's a bit like bullet journaling. I've never really done that, but, uh, but yeah, it's been, it's been quite helpful. Yeah. That could be useful for my puppy races as well. Dude. So in your role, do you train dogs every day or are you more problem solving? Uh, since this year, not so much anymore. Uh, and, and, and even then, um, so I'm the director of puppy raising for a service dog organization, BC and Alberta guide dogs. And we, uh, so I help the volunteer families. And so far I've been very hands-on still. I've, I've ran the obedience classes. I've met with the puppy raisers 101, but now I've moved into the director role. So I'm uh, more overseeing the staff uh, that is meeting the the puppy raisers and but I still go out like if there's a problem I'm still at the classes um and so next week for example I'm gonna spend uh a day going to uh a park where there's lots of dogs and working on dog distraction and and nice. scavenging yeah, so, yeah. so yeah. I'm out don't, there don't you find that to be two different skills as well like um teaching versus doing because I have met people that are incredible dog trainers, but not very good at like conveying that information to people. Not very good at like actually coaching someone else to be able to replicate their results and vice versa. I think there are some people, I probably will put myself in this category as well, where maybe a better coach than an actual dog trainer in terms of like um, really quite good at, at, at helping people get results with their dog, but not, necessarily as good at actually training the dog themselves i'm not to say yeah. that not to say that like i'm not saying like oh you're really good at teaching it but you're actually crap at doing it <laughs> i just mean like if if we were like uh playing a game you know and you have those like skills charts like you know the coaching chart would be higher than the actual training chart if that makes sense yeah or no for 100 i'm i'm on the same boat like i i i I'm definitely much better in teaching and I'm, I'm a pretty sloppy trainer. And, and that's the thing, like, I'm not obsessing over those things. Like if I watch some trainers, uh, like, I think they get so excited about doing the repetitive part. Like, uh, what is his name? Tobias from Gustafson. the, yeah, and Flo Schneider and even Pat Stewart, I think like, they're like, they're in there and 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 like I, they could out train me 100 times like i'm not that person um and i've really admittedly like i've never done any crazy complex training myself like i've worked with pet dogs i i got things to an okay thing i've never worked to like really competitive levels and now i work with with the volunteer puppy raisers and they're uh i mean we have high goals for these dogs but it's still i'm working with volunteers and we get it to a certain level and then a professional uh advanced training department is is taking it to the the end level and so um yeah i think at least i'm aware 
dead. I'm, no, I'm and, not and dead. then you can maybe because of your job role, it, it sounds like it's not so important for you to become an incredible dog trainer as long as you're a really good coach. Was what yeah. it sound, sounded like what you what you were saying, but um, yeah. And there's uh, a lot of uh, people management, right? Like I have a hundred volunteers I'm responsible mm -hmm. for, and so it's yeah, it's a lot of yeah. it's more people than dogs at this point. For like the last year or so, I've been trying to like bring the training standard up to the standard of the coaching. If you see what I'm saying, like really been attending a lot of practical workshops, really trying to like I don't know improve the my my own training skills and one of my own one of my weaknesses i don't know if you have this as well is uh like i feel like i'm i'm a better trainer when i'm training someone else's dog and and the reason for it is and i'm like this a little bit with people as well and it's like a really bad trait of mine where i think i have uh too high expectations because i almost see them like a um uh extension of myself so then if she if like she's not learning uh it as quickly as I would like, I will get frustrated a lot easier than I would if it was someone else's dog. If it was someone else's dog, I wouldn't like have that at all. Um, so it's yes. something I have to like consciously be like, what you, you're being a dick, like stop it. You know? Yeah, no, I think that like, it's really hard um, as a professional trainer. Like that's definitely like if my dog, uh, I'm trying to be as honest about it. Like I, I uh, last year, I know I, I put in a Facebook post where like my dog did not recall and stole a ball and ran around and I could not get her to recall. And I like got so mad, right? Like I'm like, oh my god like this is so embarrassing but then i was like you know what like i i think it happens to most of us and i did post about it on facebook and i told all my puppy raisers <laughs> about it and and they love it right like i remember there was a, a one time we had a class of advanced dogs and we did we all put them in the middle sitting next to each other in a in a sit stay walk away and then everybody at the same time called their dogs to themselves every dog recalled to their puppy raises except mine <laughs> and and they they loved it <laughs> and and in my defense my dog is a drop off uh, drop out from the program uh that for a while got banned from classes she 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 was a bit of a problem child doing puppy raising um and i think i have that with my previous dog that had so many issues, I, I felt that much more. I felt embarrassed as to where I got with her. I actually had to rehome her because um, her and my son, there was uh, a lot of issues and I was very worried about the safety for my son. So I ended up rehoming her. Having this dog now that most of the time makes me look pretty good, like it's so nice because, yeah. <laughs> and but yeah, it's 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 a complete different dog and scenario. So no, I mean I think dogs are like that, aren't they? You know, sometimes, uh, sometimes things just go wrong. You know, um, one thing that I've had, which is not the worst thing in the world, it's actually quite convenient, but uh, it always maybe makes me look a little bit silly is whenever I go to a workshop or this has happened like three or four times now, I'll go to a workshop and I want to solve like a certain problem or I have like a particular question. Uh, like maybe something in the training isn't really going as I expected it to. So I'll go and I'll ask the person and when at, like three or four times in a row, I would go and I would say, Hey, look, I'm having this issue. And then I would try to show them 
and as if by magic, the problem had just solved itself, you know, and she would just, she'd be fine after that. And it's like, um, it's like, well, I'm glad that you're not doing that anymore. <laughs> but, you know, I did come here to try and get some kind of like answer as to how do I stop, stop you from doing that? Or how do I get you to do something different or whatever it is? Yeah, that reminds me of like working with puppy raisers. I feel like 50% of the time we get like, he never does this. I don't know why this is happening. And then the other 50% is like, why is he not doing it right now? Like he always has these problems and he's not showing it when you're around. So like you get both sides and I'm sure it's the same with pet dogs. Um, but it's interesting. I don't know why why it is like that <laughs> they never act the way they're supposed to in front of yeah. the trainer i guess totally totally well i guess you know we should probably stop uh, telling everyone about our weaknesses <laughs> 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 they might just all tune out at this point but like um so let's get let's get a little bit more into the actual guide dog training though uh I'm trying to remember because i remember we had a little bit of conversation beforehand but i was i was curious about the breeding and selection do you get involved in that very much i'm not responsible for the breeding i know uh about it and i've gone like we we actually hosted the international guide dog conference uh, earlier this year and they had, uh, uh on the heels of that was the international working dog uh, breeders conference and so I was supplying my dogs for the uh, behavior checklist tests that we do. And so we do, uh, I'm involved in that. We take all the data from the puppies that we uh, breed and then use that data for future breeding decisions. And so with the, um, yeah, so I know a fair about, amount about the international working dog registry and what they are doing in terms of like uh, getting estimated breeding values. Uh, at least in terms of behavior. What kind of data do you take? So there is a, what is called a behavior checklist and there's 42 items on there. And there's uh, noise sensitivity, walking over surfaces. Um, there is uh, body handling, body sensitivity. So these um, are like tests that, tests that you do? So yeah, you test the dogs at... Uh, Depends on the school. So we don't do the, the eight-week tests, but a lot of them do eight weeks, four to five months, then 10 to 12 months, and then again at 14 months. And so the two and the 14-month-old tests are done more scientifically, I'd say, in a room, a novel room that the dog has never been in. And there's like the same thing for every dog in every program, like worldwide, uh, you try and create that same scenario where you have a vacuum, you have this bat that flies around, you have those underfootings and the tight space and all these things. Um, and the other two, the, the four month, what is called walk and talk assessments, and then uh, 10 months, they are done out and about in the real world. And you're trying to assess as many of those things as possible as well. Um, and what happens is like you, gather the data on each dog so you have four four assessments on each dog but also each dog in each litter and uh, like so all the ancestry and you enter all of this and then you have a uh a program 
calculating estimated breeding values. So it will flag you that that dog, and you need a whole, a, a lot of data for it to become valuable, right? Like you can't use it for, so we're still in the early progress. We're just about to uh, be able to use it, but we've been gathering that data for uh, quite a while now. And so then you, you, if you want to breed two dogs, you're going to see that there's a lot of noise sensitivity in that line. And then you try and breed it. You try and align those things, right? It will never be perfect. Um, but guiding eyes in uh, New York, they've made they were uh really instrumental in developing the whole thing and they've made uh quite a lot of like they have proved that it works and that they've improved their success rates really uh, how interesting because the temperament any kind of temperament testing has been it's always been such a controversial topic because uh it's always been so difficult to get any kind of accurate results. However, usually when people are talking about temperament testing, they're talking about like really young puppies. And obviously you said just then that you're talking about slightly older dogs. So Yeah, and they actually it it in their data, they were like they 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 tried to or they they assessed on being able to use this tool to determine whether a dog will be a successful guide dog or not. And the eight week test basically doesn't give you much information on that. Like they, they showed that, uh, it, 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 it is more valuable in terms of where you're going to place this dog. You might, uh, have a more, uh, drive a dog that needs a stronger handler or more timid dog that needs somebody that is really able to provide a lot of support. Um, but really it's even with the older ones, it's, it's, less of an assessment it can be used or like that for sure and now i'm doing these assessments with all of our dogs right like so if we uh, all our four or five month assessments are done at home depot same thing so i spot very quickly if a dog is out of the ordinary like i'm like this is extreme all my other dogs don't do that so it it is valuable in that regard it is a snapshot of in time though like it's not how old are we talking about for your home depot tests uh so it's called a walk and talk so there's a lot of talking involved with the puppyisms like if there's an issue we try and work through it and educate the puppyisms on how to do it so uh i would say with an experienced uh person it takes 20 minutes with uh, less oh, experience sorry i mean like how how old are the are the puppies oh so four four to five months in- i see okay okay Oh, or and then ten to twelve months, and then the fourteen month test again. But either way, what I what I was trying to say is that like it's it's the true value in the in this I think is in the data gathering, right? Like you're you're collecting data on all of these dogs over four assessments because one assessment will not give you a true indication that dog might have just had a bad day, but if they had noise sensitivity over four assessments now you're pretty sure that dog has a noise sensitivity great point and and if all the siblings or a lot of their siblings or ancestors uh of any kind have that too then they will show in that in that estimated breeding value yeah did you say though that you personally felt like on those walk and talks you said you saw dogs that were more extreme did you do you feel like you can have an idea about 
whether that dog's likely to be successful or actually it's just a, a pick'em at that point? Um, I think I might be able to determine which dog is not going to be successful, like if uh, with any extreme behaviors. Otherwise, not so much, because a lot of it has to do. Um, what I had to learn is that a good handler can make a dog look very good in an assessment and a, uh, a not good handler can make a dog look terrible at an assessment and then when they go to advanced training and they get a professional trainer um like that dog that didn't look good with that inexperienced handler might all of a sudden thrive right like they're like oh my god now i understand what you want me to do like of course i can do it and uh the dog that needed a lot of support from their puppy raiser they might start crumbling in advanced training because there's so much change they're in a new home there's like a lot of pressure put on them and so um it is still surprising to me which dogs make it or not and i was quite frustrated with that um because i i i felt like i'm not able to determine which dogs make it or not um i'm getting better at it but i i i run monthly networking meetings for assistance dogs international for all uh people involved in puppy raising and so i brought it up there one day when i felt really frustrated and i was like why does this keep happening i'm sending in this dog that i'm like so convinced that it's gonna be good um and it drops out and there were people with much more experience than me in that meeting people that are trained guide dog trainers which i am not um and the answer was like you you just can't <laughs> nobody's figured it out yet and and it's it's you just gotta see how the dog is doing having well, said that i do think one of our problems has been that our dogs had been with the puppy raiser from day one until advanced training and only if the puppy raiser needed boarding did the dog get moved into a different home uh, and we're trying to change that now and give the dog the experience of moving to different homes before advanced training because i think what happened was these dogs had never left at home and then boom they're in a new home it's very different plus advanced training and it just crumbled under all of that and so now we're trying to expose them in a positive way to like shorter stance of being away and teaching the dog that like it's not the end of the world moving to another house what percentage of dogs uh do make it or don't make it uh we don't have this year's stats anymore we were up to 70 percent, which is very very high for um for any service dog organization 70 successful Se 70 yeah seven zero um yeah. it's definitely gone down quite a bit i'd say we think uh we're dealing with a lot of dogs that have been raised during covid right now and i think we're seeing that plus there's some other auto changes within the organization so it's not going to be 70 i think overall um it's between 50 and 60 percent that's more realistic what do you do you, do you always use labradors then did you say 
We, yes, for the most part. I mean, at this point in our program, I think it's 95% Labradors. We do play around with golden retrievers. And what, what uh, we try to do a lot of times is uh, first crosses of golden retriever and Labrador retrievers. They are, uh, I believe, I've heard somewhere that they are worldwide the most successful uh, guide dogs. But... We haven't really had that luck, but I think that was mostly because of the the, the broods that we used uh, weren't weren't really that great. Um, we had one litter when I started. There was a litter of border collie golden retrievers, um, but we haven't repeated that for some <laughs> reason. <laughs> uh, one dog made it, and one other nine. Uh, he's still a working guide dog. Um, but yeah, it's really it's it's pretty much all labs, and there's many reasons for that. And one of the reasons is that they transition really well from home to home, yeah. so they're less less one person dogs than shepherds. Like we had shepherds in the past pre my time, but apparently it was terrible moving them from the puppy raisers. Uh, they really? just struggled so much with that. Yeah, that's interesting. I was reading um, uh, Resi Gerritsen and Rude Hack. Hopefully, I get that name; those names right. Their uh, German Shepherd history book, and they talk about having. Uh, they talk about some of the early guide dog programs where they were using German Shepherds, and um, how they were breeding the German Shepherds deliberately for the job and how much successful the ones that they were breeding were versus dogs that they bought in from other breeders. It's really, really interesting, uh, the the kind of difference. It's still happening. There's a guide dog school in the States called Fidelco. They only do uh, German Shepherds. I think only German, uh, definitely only Shepherds. Um, Guiding Eyes does still do some Shepherds, um, but they're on their way out. And I think the main reason people use them still today is is looks. Some people want a more tough looking uh, dog and uh, and just like love for the breed. But um, from what I hear, nothing against shepherds and and those shepherds are amazing. And well, from what I've heard, they the ones that made it really excelled at their job. But um, uh, yeah, I think the lab is better suited. Uh, for the it makes job. total total sense to me that uh, you wouldn't necessarily want a guarding breed for that kind of job. Like that just that makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, I mean, we with those assessments, I did. Uh, uh get educated on that alongside some people from fidelco and we were like there's aggression gets tested in there and i was like what aggression like they're like i we don't have aggression and they were like oh let me tell you like because they only work with shepherds they have oh, like really? all and i was like oh yeah that's uh that's not my world it's much different over here <laughs> oh how interesting what do you make of uh Recently, it's got very, very popular. We get a lot of inquiries from people. There's a lot of people that are trying to train their own assistance dogs. And unfortunately, our, I mean, we, we aren't assistance dog trainers by any means. But like uh, one of the issues that we often have is people are just kind of going out and getting a dog. And then they want to come and do training with us. And offer i'd probably say more times than not they have chosen a dog that's like really inappropriate for what they're trying to achieve 
Um, what have you had much experience with like owner trained assistance dogs? And I just wondered what you thought of that whole like sector. Yeah, before I go there, I just want to state that uh, I'm just hearing myself talking about Fidelco Shepherds and them being aggressive. They don't place aggressive dogs. I just want to make that clear. They just see more aggressive tendencies and I'm sure they'll weed them out. Um, so uh, I, I don't have any experience. Like if somebody comes to me and tells me they want to train their um, uh, own dog to be a service dog, then I have places that I refer them to. I think it's it's important. I mean, uh, we are uh, accredited for the Assistance Dogs International and I International Guide Dog Federation and most bigger schools are. And, and there's a certain way we do things. Um, and and all these accredited schools have wait lists for years and years like you're not going to get you can't come to us and and request a dog and get it uh quickly so um so a lot of people go and train their own dogs and i think if it's done right it can be done right uh but definitely i would agree that uh most of the time if you're just taking that dog that you have it's not going to be the right candidate and you need to go look for a dog. And it's, it's really difficult because if you look at us, we're purposely breeding these dogs. Like we have been taking labs and golden retrievers in the past from private breeders. We could not use them. And that's what I hear all around. Everybody who tries and use, tries to use pet dog bread, golden retrievers labradors they are not having much success um it's our breeding has been for years for purpose-bred dogs and they and even there our success rate is 50 to 60 percent so what are your chances of going to a pet dog breeder and getting that one that will make it it's 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 very low um granted there's you can to different timelines right like uh you don't you have all the time in the world to train your own service dog versus in in the service dog industry like we're not going to spend years working on a dog like if a dog doesn't have what it takes then uh we'll we'll wash them out and sometimes arguably you could probably turn that dog into a service dog if you took 10 months to train the dog but we don't do that but then also it's professional trainers training it and you as a as a non-professional trainers will have uh, a hard time getting to to what you need to do but it's i think it's possible but it's very difficult and um i do think it it needs to be for the right person it can be really great because the journey of training your dog is therapy for a lot of people but for oh, others it, point. like in, increased anxiety right like it could um it really could increase the anxiety the people that i've met that have been the most successful with it are the people that really embrace it and 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 to be honest with you almost become dog trainers like they yeah. they get really hooked on it um and it seems to me like if you're gonna actually take on the role of training an assistance dog you you actually kind of do have to become a dog trainer in terms of the level of knowledge you need versus someone that just wants to have a, a you know well-behaved pet dog Yes, 100%. It's, uh, I think there, it should only be a small fraction and you got to prepare, be prepared to get a dog and then 
either never turn this dog into a service dog or move the dog along and get another dog and try again with the next one. And you won't know until the dog is older, right? Like, as we said earlier, like you can't determine a little puppy whether they're going to have what it takes. You have to wait until at least like 12, 14 months, ideally probably more than that. What what about people that, you know, have a lot of money (laughs) and there is now like more and more of a, like a private sector of, uh, dog training companies are actually selling like pre-trained assistance dogs have you had much experience of that like you know are there people doing that reputably you know what does the quality tend to be like i don't know if you've experienced much of that i think i think there's like we are non-profit uh and there's not for profit so that basically like taking money and paying yourself a nice salary and training these dogs and i think it it is done uh, I'm not sure I'm an expert though, and I can't really say much about it, but I do think it's possible. And like, it's, um, is it right? I don't know, because like, it's, it's kind of unfair, like so many other things, right? Like if you can just give 16,000, 20,000, whatever they charge to this person training that dog versus the other person they cannot and they have to wait for five years so i don't like that idea of it but at the same time that's the world we live in yeah definitely <laughs> i mean you could say that about almost anything really could yes. you, you know? <laughs> yeah. you know? but you know equally if someone has a really big need and they ha- they have the money as well and they you know they could their life could be really changed by an assistance dog you know this yeah it's it's a tough one it's a tough one it but, is. um Yes, I'm not. I I I haven't formed an opinion. <laughs> sure, sure. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, well, talking about like getting, you know, having to almost become a dog trainer, I would imagine that you have to do an, an incredible amount of coaching for the people that do raise the puppies, and and if you're raising a puppy, I mean, you you're spending so much time with that dog, right? You're really going to be forming that dog's kind of view of the world. Um, what does that? look like like you know do you do you have to meet up at a certain intervals like are you doing practical training are you doing theory like what, what what do you tend to do yeah um so we have basically our first time puppy raisers get completely overloaded with information we have not managed to put it in a format that people do not get overwhelmed uh, because there's so much that we are trying to accomplish so my goal really is retention because uh, after this first one it just gets that much easier you know what the goal is you know so many things you've learned from your mistake with puppy number one so whenever we like our goal really is to keep people going and we have people they have trained uh i think the the record is 20 dogs, 20 dogs for us. Um, we have people with 15, eight, nine. We have a lot of what we call repeat offenders. And um, so, and and our, our retention rate with our volunteers over the last two years has been 70%. So really quite good. Um, and it just makes it so much easier. So there is a curriculum. There's 10 foundation classes. There's three manuals. There's 10 foundation classes where we uh, basically we throw everything. Now, I'm not uh, saying that this is the right way to do it. We're still trying to figure out how not to do that. But basically, we introduce them to everything they need to know 
in the first 10 foundation classes. And then the rest of that is working on those things and, and, and just, and so that is done by, uh, uh, weekly obedience group classes where we meet usually like it's one leader in the beginning and then over time they kind of mix with other leaders um, but because each leader goes through that foundation class within the leader and then they move on uh, to so I'm just I'm a little confused so yeah. weekly classes for 10 weeks or oh yes weekly classes for 10 weeks every yeah. week and okay. after that uh, they switch to bi-weekly classes. So for okay. until until the dog comes into advanced training, they come to these group classes. And in addition, a puppy training supervisor, a professional trainer will meet with them once a month. And those meetups, a lot of times they're in mall type settings because we can assess a lot of things. We have traffic, we have uh, elevators, escalators, uh, shiny floors, crowds, food all kinds of things right uh but it can be different things we go for off-leash walks we do home visits wherever the dog struggles as i said uh next week i'm gonna meet at a park and we work on dog distraction and scavenging with a bunch of people uh helping with that um and then on the theoretical side i think we we could do more it's always trying to find the balance of like certain people want more they need more they ask for more and then others they get overwhelmed by all the theory and whatever and it doesn't do them any good to add more to that so what i'm in the process now in my new role is i'm, I'm gonna do webinars a whole bunch of them i'm gonna prepare like one on barking one on dog distraction one on uh, proper socialization i'm gonna do them by zoom i'm gonna record them and we have a video library a huge video library of all the things including presentations and so i'm gonna add more presentations to that and then it's voluntary like they can go get that and but i'm not gonna force them to okay. do so how long is each class? Uh, 45 minutes. With the little ones, we often end early. Oh, sweet. And you mentioned their uh, dog socialization. Curious as to your approach on that, because I feel like socialization, dog-to-dog -dog socialization, is something that, like, culturally within the dog training community has actually kind of evolved over the last, like, 20, 30 years. So I'm curious what your approach to it is. Dog-to-dog -dog socialization? Oh, is... when you said, you, yeah, you said dog you said dog socialization, so I assumed oh. you meant dog to dog. Did I say dog socialization? I don't know. Uh, I'm I'm thinking more socializing the dog to the world. Uh, so socialization in that dog to dog socialization isn't very high on our priority list. I mean, we have very friendly dogs that don't cause a lot of problem off leash they might be a little too exuberant or whatever and we do we do want all our puppy raisers to take them off leash on the regular ideally luckily where we live there's a lot of trail walks where you can take them you don't have to take them to the dog park um but take them off leash and 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 socialize them there but that's i think it's more troubleshooting. Like if a puppy raiser tells me there's a problem, the dog is not coming when called, they're really rude with other dogs or whatever, we interfere. For the most part, they're just functioning that way and we don't have to do much there. The recall is definitely something we need to work on. But in terms of like social, like they're, they're all tend to be quite submissive. 
I, I guess I, I don't mean it like that, Matthias. I mean, like, uh, you know, one of the issues that a lot of people have with puppies is they let them play with other dogs all the time and then they want to go say hello to every dog. And I can imagine that would cause big issues if, say, one of your puppy raisers was taking the dog to the dog park every day, letting them play with dogs constantly, and then that was starting to interfere with the work. I don't know if that's something that that happens yes. no okay i am understanding now um yes so we there is a rule that when the dog is on leash there's no greetings so uh we have the jackets as well so luckily most people know when they see a dog in jacket they're not gonna come up um i do teach the puppy raisers to not panic i think a lot of times they panic when the dog comes up it's like oh i'm not supposed to have a, a leash greeting i'm like if they come up like let it happen and then just move on as quickly as possible but a lot of times they're like pulling on the leash and get all frantic and that can cause problems um but yeah so it's like i um i want to Make it clear to the dog that when you unleash, and especially in jacket, but really when you unleash, we're not going to interact with other dogs, but we will give you an opportunity and a time to play with other dogs. And that is, uh, comes in different forms, right? So we, the, it's a community, puppy raisers meet up a lot and they might go visit each other and then let the dogs romp around in the yard. Um, but we emphasize on the like dog park problems, like don't go to the dog parks. Uh, we, we actually don't have a no dog park policy, but we educate them on how to use a dog park, not going in when there's 10 dogs in there. Um, um, and, and so our guidelines are two to three times off leash per week where they just get to be a dog and play. And, uh, and then I emphasize that ideally that's not two to three times play dates. That's like a trail walk where they sniff and, and maybe they'll play a little bit, but uh, it's not like here we are, it's crazy play time. Just explain that a little bit more, Matthias. So two to three times a week. They're off leash, did you say? Yeah. Okay. And then the rest of the time, what would like the typical schedule be then? Are they taking the puppy out and just training with them? Or are they just going for a lead walk? Or, or how do you handle that? So I would say most of our puppies have a home and a yard. And so they do a lot of training on the like ta like the, the commands and stuff, uh, cues <laughs> um, uh, that we train. Um, so there's a lot of obedience to be trained so they might do that they play we have fetch with rules so not just playing fetch it's like sit stay throw the toy and we don't use sticks and balls that's a whole other story but we we throw that and then we release the dog or make them come to us first so a structured fetch we play tug of war um so they have that right like in the home they have fun time play time with the human they uh, get to go everywhere with their uh, person so they do a lot of like running errands and that is very stimulating and training to them if we go to the mall for half an hour a young puppy is, is burned out after that and then we have like i love sarah streming's decompression walk idea right like it's it just going off into the trails and being a dog and that should be two to three times a week as a rough guideline we don't care if it's a bit more one week, less the other week. What we really have to think about is that the the service dog, the graduated service dog, most likely will not get 
daily off-leash walks. So it's unfair to the dog to be like, every morning we're going to go to the trails for an hour. And then uh, when they graduate, we're like, guess what? That's not going to be your life. Looks fun, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So so, um, we're trying to not have too much of a routine. They need to be flexible and they need to be, and a a lot of a service dog's life is settling, settling in a very difficult environment so there's a lot of uh practice with that as well well one of the things we were talking about before we got started you were telling me about coaching people on the angles of approach um which is another another kind of interesting coaching topic can you kind of explain that a little bit more yeah, so I uh, I ended up writing a whole article about it because I tried to find materials uh, about it, and and uh, I found Suzanne Claudier. She had some similar things, but it wasn't quite exactly what I was talking about. Um, but anyways, it's what I've I struggled for a long time not understanding why things happen for me but not for the puppy raiser so like the puppy raiser would uh like let's say we had an obedience class and you're trying to walk by another dog and the dog is just lunging pulling towards the other dog then i would take that dog and the dog's just like glued to me and and part of that is novelty they're like more excited to see me than the puppy raiser they hang out with and whatever but there was still something missing i knew and i couldn't put my finger on it until at some point i realized what i was doing different was uh the angle of approach like rather than walking in a straight line and it was very minimal right like it's not it's not you changing the angle of approach by like 10% makes it makes it or breaks it for the dog so um once i became aware of that that that's part of the reason that it works for me and not for them like i started focusing on that i saw it everywhere i'm like oh my god like look at the angle of approach like of course it's not gonna work or and i could educate them like now i could name it and i'm like look the reason why it's working for me or and and once i started focusing on it and and talking about it i just realized it was a missing piece in this puppy raisers repertoire like they they tried to do the same thing that i did but they approached wrong and so putting it in people's mind on how to approach like when you see food on the ground like if you walk in in uh and so we have our dogs on the left typically so like i can put myself in between that's another thing right like that comes with that like if i walk on the left hand side of that food i'm in between the dog and the food and i can set them up for success and they're not going to go now i have an opportunity to reward the dog for what i want them to do um and then i i i really now when i do this exercise i'm like okay here's the thing on the ground now walk by on the left hand side handler in between dog and item at an angle away if that works well then you reduce that angle slowly and start going in a straight line if that goes well you move to the other side dog to item now you got to increase that angle again and the distance probably but yeah i i think everywhere you can read things distance right like it's increased the distance but nobody was talking about the angle so i 
yeah, I just decided that I'll write the article that I was looking for because I couldn't find it. No, it's interesting because I think there's a lot of like things that sometimes feel a little bit intangible or like, you know, it's quite hard to uh, coach sometimes. And they're like some every now and then someone will say to me, oh, like you did it that way or you used your hand like this or you did something, you know, and I'll be like, oh, yeah, I didn't even like realize that I did that, you know, and they, they kind of like catch me doing something that I hadn't really like it just become part of like my subconscious. Like I hadn't even really like, like really thought about what I was doing. I guess that behavior had just been reinforced to use dog training terms. And I hadn't really even realized it, you know? Um, like I think the most obvious one of example of this for me is in luring training. When you start doing uh, lure and reward with dogs and oftentimes people find it hard to replicate your results um because luring is like a real skill and like slight differences in where your hand is make big differences in the end result and uh when you aren't used to and you don't have like uh, the hours of experience of like you know ha the way that you move your hand like you know the difference in you know five centimeters to the right or five centimeters to the left or whatever and you, you know if you don't have that experience then it's quite hard to replicate it. And I've always thought about it kind of like, uh, you know, like if you were being coached to like play football or something, I mean, UK football, <laughs> like if, if you were co being coached to like take a free kick, right? Uh, like, like David Beckham can tell you how to, to kick the ball, but this is, it's very, it's such a like skill that it's kind of hard to, convey to people oftentimes but it sounds like you've given that a lot more thought than i have <laughs> in that regard i'm sure you'll find like plenty of things where you like if you'd watch me you'd be like oh well i would like you know i think there's many other areas i'm sure that i haven't thought that deeply or i haven't realized yet what i'm doing like you say like there are things that we're doing without being conscious like i had the uh, same thing like one of my puppy training supervisors was uh pointing something out to me and i was like oh yeah and same thing i started implementing that and started teaching it and i was like oh yeah it works <laughs> like i'm i've been doing it because it works but i had no idea i was doing it so it is yeah. really important as a coaching skill though because uh small differences make big differences to the result you know i've noticed i guess the most recent example of this for me is in um lead walking training and before i hadn't i always think with coaching you develop like almost like a patter like you know because as a pet dog trainer i've ex and you probably have it in a similar similar way like I've explained the same exercises thousands of times to people just over the years. And uh, so for, for most exercises or things that I do, like I have a pattern, like I explain it pretty much the same way every time because I've just refined it over the years and found my own way of doing it. Um, but with lead walking, I changed it probably over the last year or so because I thought people were really struggling with it with in terms of where to put their hands and stuff like that. So that's maybe an example where I thought of exactly what you're talking about in terms of coaching. Like, so now I, I'm a little bit more precise with like my language to people like have the lead in your right hand and here's this is where you're going to have the treats and, you know, um, 
sometimes I, I don't know if you find this, Matthias. I found this with dogs as well as people. Sometimes if you sometimes people try to be nice and they try to give people a lot of freedom to like um like uh, maybe I'm it's quite hard to explain, but like uh you know, like before I probably wouldn't uh, I wouldn't have said what hand to have the lead in or what hand to have the treats in, and I would leave it up to them. But the problem is that actually makes them more likely to make mistakes versus if I just say, have the lead in your right hand or have the treats in your right hand or your left hand or whatever, right? It, it leaves less up. It, it makes uh, less opportunity for them to make mistakes. And, and it's the same with the dogs. And actually I can use the lead walking example for that. You know, when I, a few years ago, I was trying out the whole, uh, you know, the, uh, the dog can have the leash loose and that's fine. But if the leash is tight, then that's a problem. Um, and I, I have never found anywhere near as much success teaching it like that. I always found it so much easier to convey to the dog. I want you to be parallel to my leg by my side, even like, and sometimes people think that's like an ego thing. Oh, you want the dog to be right next to you. Like how old fashioned it's like, no, I, I do that for the dog because it's so much easier. And maybe it's just me. But for the for the dog to understand, I want you by yeah. my side. Versus you can you the the concept of a, 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 a tense leash leash or not, you know? Yeah, I have so many thoughts to all of what you just said, but um, yeah, I feel like what I had to learn is like I I got really into leash communication for a while, and it works well, but it's really hard to teach, and it's really like it's almost like I'm coming to kind of the conclusion that it's a bit of a wasted effort sometimes to try and teach puppy raisers uh leash community i still do it i i, I still there's a lot and i ha actually i held a whole uh, presentation at the conference about uh, it's called it's not the dog it's a leash and talks what, what about like how do you mean what, what do you mean by leash communication uh, really like pressure on pressure of moving into the pressure and 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 just communicating with the dog via the leash um i think it's it's very effective and very powerful and um but it's very hard to do to do it well and so um yeah i don't know i i I'm, i might not have clear thoughts on the whole thing um but what something else you were talking about um earlier is um teaching something like you know the engage disengage game i'm assuming and yeah, i, I feel i still haven't figured out how to teach it properly because so many times i will uh explain the concept and i feel like i've done I've, like I've, I've refined on how I do it and so many times I feel like in that moment I have succeeded in explaining the whole concept of not asking the dog to look at you but rather like mock reward uh uh and so and then I come around and I meet them and they're like, yeah, it's not working. And they go like, look, look, look. And I'm like, no, <laughs> yeah. no that's, not what we, that's not what we did. And I don't know why I'm not getting that across. Yeah. Do you use markers for people? Yes, we use uh, the yes marker. We don't use uh, clickers. 
that would be an interesting thing to see multiple people explain it and then record all of them and then compare yeah. that. That would be really cool. That would be really cool. And normally the way I, I would explain, or the way I would get around that is just, usually, uh, I don't know. I don't think I've had huge issues with that. I just tell people not to say anything. They can't say anything except for the word yes, you know? So Do I you normally slap just- them? <laughs> i normally just say we're not i just say we're not you don't say anything during the sex exercise the only thing you're saying is yes when the dog turns to you uh but i do agree i mean i think that's the case with a lot of training oftentimes sometimes it's not um sometimes it's not that the person doesn't understand it's that they have difficulty executing it in terms of they're so used to talking to the dog that yeah. is hard for them to stop. They worry about the dog doing something, right? So they want to preemptively tell the dog what to do before they do something unwanted. Yeah. But I actually, it's interesting you brought that up because uh, I was listening to a few of your other podcast appearances and I thought that was an interesting observation you had. And I, I totally agree about disengage and engage. And you told a story about how you used to say, look at me, focus, those kind of, you know, you used to cue it. And then you realized that the dog was a little bit helpless then without the cue and, and how much more sophisticated it is when you teach the dog that the distraction is the cue to pay attention to you. And and that was a massive realization for me as well. And and for me, that is one of the biggest like wins in dog training in a sense because it's it's really incredible that you can actually make the distraction a signal to pay attention to you like i feel like people lose that it's like now the distraction actually is starting to work in your favor which is kind of crazy like to think about yeah. that. uh so i i think that's really magical too and i think a lot of people don't appreciate that yeah. And the really nice thing for me in my position is that I can point out to the puppy raiser that, look, if this dog is going to be a guide dog, the guide dog owner is not going to see the other dog. He's not going to see the thing on the ground. He can't say leave it because he doesn't know the thing is there. So the dog needs to automatically do the right thing. Right. And so I think thinking about oh, framing it that way and thinking about that end result really helps them get it that they, we need that automatic response and 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 i think that's really a big goal of mine is like like get automatic responses i want a dog that just knows what to do in in like whether pet dog or not like it, they should just know what to do in each situation obviously i sometimes need to able to be able to help out and i want to be able to tell my dog what to do but for the most part uh, it's most useful in in most circumstances, I think, if the dog knows exactly what to do or what not to do. Yeah, definitely. There's also something. Uh, I mean, you can train that. You can train responses to environmental cues, obviously, and that would be advisable for anyone, really. Um, but there is also a level of like communication that comes when you do a lot of training with a dog, which is. Uh, a really special thing that I think not many people actually get to experience when, when you've trained a dog or you've, you've done a lot of training with a dog over, you know, a long span of time. I, I think you do develop almost like, like it's quite hard to describe, but like a connection where the dog does seem to understand what to do in that situation with no instruction or whatsoever. Um, 
like yeah it can it can seem a little bit uh like uh what's the word like uh it can seem a little bit like hippy dippy at times you know like because it's almost like a i'm not saying it is telepathic <laughs> i'm not i'm not crazy but it, it feels like that sometimes like the dog's just doing the the you know the dog's just you know like uh you'd have that thought of like oh i should tell him to do this and then he just does it you know, because um, and I guess that just comes from from years. Yeah, totally, totally. But it if it's quite special to have that kind of relationship with a dog. I enjoy it. Like I, I was obsessed with animals and in general, not necessarily dogs, all my life. And I always like, you know, I always wanted to communicate with dogs or whatever. And I always tell people like now, now it really, I think is true that like I'm able to connect with a dog much faster than your average person. So the dogs are drawn to me and I like, I am that person that like, like most dog trainers, I would assume like that's just what happens. Right. But it's actually, it was all learned like it wasn't like that i wasn't born like that i didn't have a, a an amazing natural connection to animals but now i'm just like i know when to back off i know when to move forward i, I like give the dog space or whatever and i i've i really enjoy the fact that like now i'm pretty good in communicating with them and and seeing those like sometimes dramatic or fast results um but it's all it's knowledge really and and there's some feeling there as well but yeah yeah and that's that's the challenge sometimes with coaching is you know you can only uh progress someone at a certain rate you know and it's difficult sometimes when you can achieve something with a dog extremely quickly because of all of that skill and experience that you've you know that you've built up uh that that person can sometimes struggle to replicate um and obviously you do your best to like navigate that with the coaching side of things um but it can be challenging i think that's you know that can become an ethical dilemma sometimes when you do have that skill and when you come across rescue dogs like there are so many i there are countless rescue dogs where i think if i owned this dog like i honestly would never have a problem with it you know because i would understand how to how to handle this dog um but unfortunately trying to find someone else that has that level of knowledge and wants a dog with these problem behaviors is like finding you know like finding a needle in a haystack yeah and oftentimes those dogs end up being euthanized or they end up uh you know just being in bad situations and that that's uh yeah, that's kind of sad, really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is. I I don't like to think about it much, uh, <laughs> but uh, it's true. It's true for sure. And I think, yeah, it's interesting because I feel like I carry around a lot of guilt of not of not providing my dog with the fullest life like i'm a busy person i have two kids and i have this dog that i can bring to work with me most days uh but still i'm like you should run around more you should do more and i feel like that's like kind of a curse of knowing so much about what dogs are bred for what they're supposed to do that like it sometimes makes it hard for me to enjoy my dog uh because i'm constantly feeling like i'm letting her down yeah i had that a lot with my first dog and uh when he died i think i i still do and i did for a long time and have like felt very guilty about that like i was 
like felt like I didn't do enough stuff with him. Um, and I think that's probably why now that's probably, you know, one of the motivators, one of the reasons I, I do do a lot of stuff now with Onyx, like kind of like what you were saying with the puppy raisers, like she's kind of with me all the time. If, I, although I'm not like taking her everywhere in terms of, uh, you know, I don't take her into every shop that I go into or anything like that. She just stays in the van, but because she's in the van and she's with me, she comes out for like five, 10 minutes here and there throughout the day. Um, I do training with her most days uh, and we go on walks and stuff like that. And I, and that helps me feel a lot less guilty, but I'm really lucky in that I have a, as a pet dog trainer, I have a, a job where, and I have the van. So I have the ability to just take up everywhere with me. And I think very few people have that ability. Yeah. And, and if I look at my dog's life, you know, it's probably 10 times better than most yeah. people. Yeah. Oh, I'm like, sure it is. Yeah. I'm sure it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I still feel guilty. It's still not out there on the farm, like out all day doing the fun things. Uh, because I live in I live in a big city and we don't have a yard. Um, but but I have 10 minutes and I'm in an off-leash trail in the in the forest. So yeah oh yeah i'm sure your dogs will have fantastic lives <laughs> yeah definitely even just to live with someone with a level of knowledge that that you have so um one topic that we haven't just quickly before we wrap up one topic that we haven't really spoke about is the iaabc am i saying that right i always say iaabc Although I think you didn't I say that. I always say AABC, but either <laughs> way it works. <laughs> that, uh, yeah, people, I don't think there's consensus on how to say it. No worries, um, no worries. But like uh, you, it, we were talking a little bit before and there's been some interesting, uh, I think actually it wasn't really the pronunciation. It was more, it was an, it's another acronym, you know, and it's really easy to like uh, start muddling them. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah. it's just more like it's just become a bit of like an alphabet soup. Yeah. <laughs> um. uh, the dog training industry. But like you were you were talking before about well, firstly, I should say, I think you mentioned it at the beginning, but you're involved. Well, tell us a little bit more about I, that. I was involved with the IAABC and now <laughs> I'm on the board with the IAABC Foundation. Uh and I think even our members, their members, because we're not a membership organization. IABC is a membership organization. Um, and so it's split up. It used to be one and now it's two. And so the IABC is uh, all about accreditation. And uh, so it's a membership organization and they do the dog trainer accreditation, the, the um, behavior consultant accreditations for different species. Uh, and then the IABC Foundation got separated and that's about the education part. So that is, uh, it's also an, a nonprofit organization and we're responsible uh, for the education part. So we offer courses, we do the IABC Foundation Conference is run by us, but you'll see all the board members from the IABC there. It's very close, like our, our uh, executive directors, they meet weekly. Um, it's just that it got separated and it's two things. And we're trying very hard uh, to make people understand the difference and that there are two different organizations. I, I've 
never really been a very good member of an association. <laughs> you know, I've always just been doing my own thing. But the the IABC has always been my favorite association uh, in terms of uh, I just have found it to be a particularly open-minded, nice group of people uh, versus some some of the other associations oftentimes can, you know, it can fall victim to the classic dog trainer thing of just like trainer wars. Uh, and I've I've it, I've always had good experiences with the IABC. Why why did you choose them? Why choose that association? The same reason, I would say. I was looking. Um, well, really, I was talking a lot to Sarah Dixon, who was the uh, president uh, back in the day, and um, she was talking a lot about it. And I was like, "It sounds cool, and sounds like it's level-headed people that run this." So I joined it, and then I became the working animals division chair. And yeah, I think it's. Uh, for the most part, sensible people. <laughs> no, it's a, uh, it's, it's great. It's, it's when I joined it, I was just um, so impressed by the knowledge level. There was like the conversations were at such a high level, and 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 still are. Um, and so that's really like for me. It's been great, and and it has it, it does seem to me like it's a more open minded uh, community than others, um, and and yeah, just like at the forefront of a lot of things. Like there's and we're with the IBC Foundation, we are actually participating in in research as well, and and so yeah, it's pretty cool. There's a lot of cool stuff happening. So how do people find out more about that? Like what kind of things can people get involved in if they if they aren't already involved in that? So yeah, you can just become a supporting member. You don't need to be uh, accredited or anything uh, of the IABC. So you can check out iabc.org um, and then iabcfoundation.org. And on there, again, you don't need to be a member. You can just look at the courses that we offer and and pick one that works for you and there's a lot of variety it's and and it's animal it's not dog so there is a parrot division uh well actually it's not divisions anymore but there's uh, a lot of content on 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 parrots and horses as well at our conferences as well there's tracks for for um birds and and horses cats lots of cat stuff um so in in that regard it's pretty special as well it's not just dogs it's it's everything ah fantastic and then also where can people find out more about uh all of the assistant dog stuff that you're doing so i work for bc and alberta guide dogs in uh, vancouver canada and so you could check out our homepage, bc and alberta guide uh find out more there we are always looking for puppy races so if you live in calgary victoria or vancouver you could uh have a look at that and maybe raise a dog for us um and then you could check out Assistance Dogs International. Uh, so that's the the mother organization for everything that is not guide dogs, but other uh, service dog organizations. So we are a member of that. And we are also a member of the International Guide Dog Federation, which uh, oversees the guide dog 
part of it. And then uh, if you want to get in touch with me, I use Facebook just for dogs. That's kind of like, I feel like I am on LinkedIn, but I don't think many dog trainers are. <laughs> um, so uh, feel free to befriend me on Facebook, but beware it's only about dogs and not a whole lot i'm not very active i've taken it off my phone and i'm i'm not doing much there yeah fantastic well i re after five years of speaking i'm really glad that we finally did this <laughs> podcast and uh yeah really appreciate having you on yeah thank you i could talk for hours with you it seems so it was great well, I hope you enjoyed that podcast. I would really appreciate it if you would take a minute to leave a review on whatever podcast app you listen to this on, whether that's Spotify, Apple, or any other podcast app, or just share this podcast with a friend or on Instagram or Facebook. That would really help more people to discover the podcast, and I would massively appreciate it. See you in the next episode.